worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress-them-on-the-third-date guacamole? Well, good thing Instacart shoppers are as picky as you are. They find ripe avocados like it's their guac on the line. They are milk expiration date detectives. They bag eggs like the 12 precious pieces of cargo they are. So let Instacart shoppers overthink your groceries so that you can overthink what you'll wear on that third date. Download the Instacart app to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. This is Pat Spenner, co-author of The Challenger Customer, and you're listening to The Marketing Book Podcast. Welcome to The Marketing Book Podcast, helping you keep up with the smartest thinking in the quickly changing field of modern marketing. And now, here's your host, Douglas Burdett. Hello, thanks for joining me on the Marketing Book Podcast. My goal for this podcast is to help you discover new ideas about what's working in modern marketing. Don't worry about taking notes. You can find links to everything discussed in the show notes at marketingbookpodcast.com. Today, we're joined by Pat Spenner, and we're going to talk about the new book he has co-authored with Brent Adamson, Matthew Dixon, and Nick Toman, The Challenger Customer, Selling to the Hidden Influencer Who Can Multiply Your Results. Pat is a strategic initiatives leader in the marketing practice at CEB, which is a global publicly traded best practice insight and technology company that provides products and services to businesses worldwide. At CEB, Pat spends his time on research, new product development, and thought leadership. And since joining CEB 10 years ago, Pat has overseen customer programs serving the needs of chief marketing officers, corporate communication executives, and marketing communications executives. Pat, congratulations on the Challenger customer, and welcome to the Marketing Book Podcast. Thank you, Doug. Great to be with you. Well, I just have to say that I have the pleasure of reading a lot of books for this podcast. And I think versus the last 50 or so that I've read, this one has blown my mind more than any others. <laughs> Glad to hear that. That was our objective. Really? Blow Doug Burdett's mind. Yep. Oh, wow. Yeah. Boy, you had it boiled down to a persona of one reader. <laughs> Incredible. <laughs> yeah. No, I mean, I'm in the B2B sales and you know marketing world, and I find that really, really fascinating, and I love reading about it. And one thing, I it sort of uh, rebooted my marketing brain or, or something along those lines because it got me thinking about everything. And what's funny is that in the book, and we'll talk about this, you talk about how you need to go to customers and diplomatically help them understand that what they're doing might be all wrong. And that, Pat, was some of the experience I was having while reading this. And then towards the end, I was like, hey, wait a minute. I see what these guys are doing. <laughs> it's all very meta, isn't it, Doug? <laughs> exactly. Exactly. <laughs> but I would you know, encourage anyone who's in B2B marketing and sales to read this book. And as, as you mentioned beforehand, what was it? this is a dense uh, bullion cube. That's right. Those who have made their way through the book tell us, wow. That was dense. It was packed with insight. It felt like chewing on a bullion cube. So, you know, if that sounds appealing to you, then dive right in and have at it. Well, here's my take, and then we'll get into the book. But it, it wasn't, I mean, it's not a like a Oxford Dictionary. It's not, I don't know how many pages. I read it on my Kindle. But I read this book more slowly <laughs> than any other book I've read in a while. I didn't want to miss anything. It was just, it was it was that good. So... Congratulations. Oh, Let me start with just a quote to get us, you know, talking about the book. 
And then I only have about 250 questions that I want to follow up with. <laughs> right on. Uh, yeah, we won't, we won't have time for that. But let me start with this. Whether you're in sales, marketing, service, or support, from the front line to the corner office, each chapter of the Challenger customer provides surprising findings for rewriting the rules for how the best companies connect with current customers, dramatically boosting sales performance as a result. All designed to drive decisive action among customer organizations increasingly predisposed to systematically avoid it. So, Pat, can you explain to the listener how this book came about, the relationship to the Challenger sale, and then we're going to start in on one of my favorite numbers, which is 57%. Right on. Yes, happy to. So, you know, CEB at heart, Doug, is a research organization. And so we are always listening to our membership of heads of sales and heads of marketing to take our research cues from the questions that they are asking. And when we published the Challenger sale four or five years ago now, I think that book addressed some open questions about what, what drives sales rep performance you know, uh, these days. But anytime you do research, you find two things. You find answers and you find more questions. And so I think the Challenger sale, while it addressed some questions, it also opened up some new areas of exploration. And our membership has been great at leading us to those areas of exploration. So over the ensuing four or five years, we've we've done probably a dozen different research studies focused on especially B2B buying behavior and changes in B2B buying behavior. And that's what got us on the road to the Challenger customer. And whenever I hear CEB, you know, when I'm writing a blog post and talking about some of the changes going on in the, you know, the, the buying patterns of B2B people, I always include a link to a study that you all did. I think it was based originally on a Harvard Business Review article. And all I do is type into Google CEB 57% Boom. It brings it right up. I'm able to grab the link and include it in my blog post. Can you explain what this study was and the significance of 57%? Because it's a number that comes up again and again throughout the book. Yeah, it's all part of our strategy to pick a number and own it. 57%. Right. No, I'm kidding. Yeah. So, Overtake Heinz. <laughs> that's right. Exactly. That's right. So 57% is, on average, how far a B2B customer is through the purchase process before they meaningfully engage supplier sales reps. And so that came from uh, a study we did a number of years ago. We've since validated that number across repeated buyer studies. And it's been a really important finding, I think, that, that characterizes part of the changes that are happening in B2B buying today. And so it, it speaks a bit to the empowered customer, what we come recently to have, to have, to, to believe is perhaps the overwhelmed customer, but it very much represents those customers being able to learn on their own and, and, and really learn a lot about their problem solutions and suppliers offerings before they ever really have to meaningfully engage a supplier sales rep. Mm -hmm. And there was one part of the book where I did actually laugh out loud. I know that was not the intent of the authors, but you have this one part where you say, why do customers delay contact with sales reps? Because they can. <laughs> because they can. <laughs> Who wants, so yeah, I mean, the, the parallel we bring into this is to make it all real and personal for us is if you're ever buying a car, which for an individual is a, you know, an involved process, often involving more than just you, other folks in your household, 
what's the last thing you want to do in buying a car? Well, actually go into the dealership and talk to a car salesman, right? And so I'm it's still driving an old car of, because of that. Yeah, right? So we think that dynamic is very much at play as to why B2B customers would continue to delay contact with supplier sales reps because mm-hmm. they can. Yeah. So the risk of oversimplifying some of the points in the book, the, the issue becomes how do you get to those buyers before they first raise their hand, pick up the phone, email the potential vendor. And the thinking has been, and you all talk quite a bit about some of the strengths and flaws of of current content marketing, and that Mm -hmm. is that you publish things online so that you get found by them. And all those types of things that I've been doing and helping clients with and that type of thing. Mm -hmm. But there's a problem with that. Let's talk about thought leadership. You talk about how thought leadership doesn't necessarily uh, generate action. Yeah. There's a, there's a simple framework we talk about in the book, and it's an A on the left, an arrow in the middle, and a B on the right. And we call right. that an A to B framework. And in a way, if you just, A represents the customer's current beliefs, thoughts, and assumptions about the way their world works, the way their business works. The arrow is some underappreciated insight about the way that their world works. And the B is some desired thoughts, assumptions, beliefs that we as suppliers would like the customer to hold about the way their business works. And in a way that ideally ultimately leads uniquely back to us, right? Mm-hmm. What we find in the uh, and, and the argument we, we make against thought leadership as commonly practiced in the book is that most thought leadership focuses on the B state to the exclusion of the A state. So in other words, thought leadership, as we see it, is very much intended to paint the vision of the city on the hill and how great life would be if only you B2B customer would buy our our solution, the technology under our solution. If only you appreciated how great life would be, man, you're right. And so thought leadership is very much predicated on sort of showing customers new trends and new technologies. How smart you look. How smart you look. It's predicated on this, this belief that if I can be the smarter expert perspective, then when that customer is in the market for fill in the blanks, ball bearings, market automation technology, aircraft engines, whatever, they're going to think of me first. Now, here's the, here's, the, here's the crux, though. We think that at the end of the day, most B2B suppliers are, if you step back from it, what they're really selling is change. So if you're selling any kind of a reasonably complex solution, anything more than a commodity, you're asking the customer to embark on some kind of change, right, in their behavior in order to bring you in or buy more from you or buy differently or additional sort of products or a larger solution from you. You're asking them to change. Yeah, that was one of my favorite lines of the book. You said, if there is one simple truth of every B2B supplier today, it is that they are all selling the same thing. Exactly. And you know what's the change. one thing that customer organizations don't want to buy these days? What you're selling. Change. Change. Oh, that's so hard and frustrating, isn't it? It's terrifying. Yeah, it's terrifying. But here's the thing. So then to bring it back to the A to B and, and the problem with thought leadership, it's that if thought leadership is over there focused on the B state, where we actually need to be focused if we're going to drive change is on breaking down the customer's A state, their current thoughts, beliefs, and assumptions about the way that their business works today. Because if we don't do that, 
the customer is going to look at your thought leadership and say, oh, that's a, that's a nice vision, but oh, change is hard. I don't know that I want to go on that journey. And I'm good now enough. There's, there's four other suppliers who have a vision of the bee, and I, I don't know if any of them, you know, I'm, I think I'm good right where I am. It's good I'm enough. not in that much pain. Yeah. No, 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 no. Yeah. And, but you've got, so you've got to make pain of same greater than the pain of change. Oh, boy. Right? That was the one line from the book that needs to be, you know, carved in stone. That's right. And so if your content isn't doing that, in, right, in the 57% pre-sales stage, mm-hmm. you're in big trouble. Because your sales rep's going to walk in there and is going to spin, try to spin a story, but the customer will already kind of settled on, you know what, where we are today, it, it's pretty good. And that's why so many deals today end in status quo or no decision, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Now, you say that we found only two drivers capable of reliably driving that kind of change. One, teaching the customer something new and compelling about their business. Mm-hmm. And two, providing customers with a compelling reason to take action. So can you explain more about that and this whole notion of commercial insight? That, And, and it's not an insight that you find. It's one that you make happen. That's right. Yeah. Doug, I'm impressed. You've read the book very carefully. My compliments. <laughs> That's I I, it, it, was, it was one big speed bump. I couldn't read it quickly. Yeah. yeah. Darn so, you. Yeah. Well, yeah. Apologies for that. Commercial insight is the heart of the challenger, what makes challenger and challenging work. A commercial insight is an insight about the customer's business that reframes the way the customer thinks about their own business in a way that leads uniquely back to you as a supplier. So it is very much anchored on showing the customer what is wrong with their current A state. Again, ultimately, you're telling them they're wrong in a very polite, diplomatic way. But it is nonetheless showing them where they are wrong. Mm -hmm. And in a way that sort of replaces that A state with a B state, a set of beliefs, assumptions about their business that happens to lead uniquely to what it is that you do best. And so that's what a commercial insight is. And that's where we think marketing organizations and all the time and energy that goes into content marketing is better spent not on thought leadership but on creating those commercial insights and now organizing a tighter, in some cases smaller, but more powerful portfolio of content around a commercial insight. Because that's really what it takes to break down the A before you get to the B, make the pain of same greater than pain of change. Yes, and so of course I read a lot of this and it was uh, it was rattling my... <laughs> you rattled my paradigm, Pat. <laughs> and so... Then it, it got me thinking about well maybe you know what what am, what am I doing wrong what am I what are my you know what am I doing wrong with my customers or the marketing for my company, but can you give an example of commercial insight maybe Xerox or some of the others in the book or maybe one that's not even in the book but a, a commercial insight that then basically opened the door and closed it for a supplier before anyone else could get in. Yeah, happy to. Uh, Xerox is a great example. It's in the book, so your your audience can go and read more about it in, in great detail. At Xerox, now this is a kind of printer solutions division inside of Xerox, and specifically within that, it's their group that sells into the education vertical, K through 12, right, where the school districts need, you know, are big users of printing systems. Just think about all the papers that come home in your child's backpack every day. And so I know I've got four kids. We have a lot of paper, Doug. So so printing solutions are a big deal there. And, you know, Xerox had a a new technology advance underpinning one of their, you know, new printing solutions. And, 
you know, they were tempted to kind of apply the old classic marketing and sales kind of playbook to that, which is going to be very much an us-centric, feature-centric, right? Whenever you come from a a B2B organization that is dominated by engineers, your tendency is going to be, oh, God, the technology is so great. Let's mm-hmm. lead with the features and benefits of the technology. How could we not talk about the technology? We worked hard on that technology. Yeah, we worked so hard on that technology, right? It's got to be in there, marketers, right? And so that's the old playbook. When What Xerox, though, had been finding is that when you take that old playbook into school districts these days, and right, we all know what state budgets look like and local budgets look like and the hammer that's coming down on state school budgets, or, or district school budgets, that's a really tough conversation because you know what happens? You, a Xerox sales rep goes into the head of IT, right, for the school district who's typically the key, a key decision maker, leads with the features benefits. It's great technology. You know what they hear from the IT guy? Man, that sounds so cool. I, I will grant you that your printing solution probably does provide incremental performance over what we've got today. But I think we're kind of good enough with what we've got today. You know, it's Which I think is done. even more frustrating than getting pushback saying no, we don't need it. It's when they say this, your product really is great. It's better, but we're yeah. good. we're good. And and we hear that time and again, Doug, from across our membership is like we, you know, we are going in there, and the customer will look us in the eye and stipulate right up front, we know your solution is better in some areas than competitors, but they just they won't pay you for it. So you kind of got to back up the train, right? And you've got to come up with a commercial insight that's going to just reframe that whole conversation. And so that's what Xerox did. Leia Casada, who at the time was the head of, of marketing inside of that K through 12 vertical, she's great, plucky, pulled a small team together, and they created a commercial insight that was anchored on the role that color plays in student engagement in the classroom. Because what they did in their customer research when they mapped out how heads of curriculum development and superintendents and lead teachers, the way that they think about student engagement in the classroom and student performance, they mapped out that that kind of collective mental model of how they think about that world. And what they found was that those audiences were making some false assumptions or missing some important pieces of what drives student engagement. Most notably that today's digital native children, I don't know about you, like, you know, two-year-olds these days, and and this is true of my two-year-olds, as soon as they, you know, can, they are on the iPad playing with that, right? And mm-hmm. it's very interactive and multimedia. Certainly it's color. There's very few black and white iPad apps that I know of. And so when those digital native children get in the classroom and they're, they, they find that ha- they have to switch between these very vibrant interactive tools that they have at home and the black and white, you know, printouts of their worksheets and classroom materials in the classroom, that's actually a that's a pretty important driver of student disengagement and an impediment to student performance. And so that was where the commercial insight for Xerox was anchored is let's go in and reframe the way that lead teachers and superintendents and curriculum development folks think about student engagement in the classroom. And that's where the sales conversation now starts. And boy, does that open doors if you're Xerox to a whole different set of stakeholders who you can go talk to because you've got a compelling story around something that they may not even appreciated about their world before. So you're teaching with that, but that in a way leads uniquely back to Xerox. So that's kind of the story in a pseudo nutshell. I know that wasn't really a 30 second spot, but you know, that, that sort of plays out an example of a commercial. Well, it's a big so. part of the book. So you get more than 30 seconds. Yeah. Yeah. Good, good <laughs> thing. Right. <laughs> yeah. No, no. What happens though, then if, 
someone else can do the same thing. You're still protected by the fact that you've created this insight? Well, that's where when you create commercial insight, what we say, we put this in the book for sure, and it's in it's in all the workshops and the work that we do with our with our members, is you actually have to start kind of with you and understanding what is it that you do uniquely well. And what we find is that that is a, a surprisingly difficult question mm-hmm. for B2B organizations to come up with a crisp answer, answer to, especially large enterprises that have been in the marketplace for a long time. Their competitors are in the marketplace. Their competitors also have great brands, great products, et cetera. So really getting to what it is you do uniquely well, that's a that's a precursor to all of this work. If you don't have an understanding of that, you're totally right. You could be developing insights that reframe a way the customer thinks about their business, but that don't lead back uniquely to you. And you know what business you're in then? You're in the free consulting business. That's yeah. not a good business to be in. So you've really got to make sure that it's anchoring back to something you do uniquely well. And in this case, Xerox had that thing. It's tied into the specifics of the the color printing technology here. Yeah, I won't bore you with details, but 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 that's where it is in this case. Xerox was sure that it, that it led back to that. Otherwise, you then get into what you call the one of three problem, which is where you can get all the way towards the end, but there's still going to be two others that are going to be invited to, to bid against you. Exactly. And that's where you get commoditized. And you might feel like you won at the end because you got the deal, but it was a small deal. It was stripped of its margins, right? You didn't... You, and so you might have won, but you really lost, uh, yeah. is what we find. You know, that's what we hear from our members a lot of the times. More often than not, though, kind of ends in either a status quo or a lot of times no decision because the the customer organization, the stakeholders inside of that buying group can't come to a consensus about what their problem is or the, even the nature of the solution, much less who the right supplier is. Mm-hmm. Now, before we wrap up, I just wanted to mention a couple things for the benefit of the listener, and that is the book talks about this fallacy of finding the senior decision maker because, or or the whoever is the the decision maker, it's not, that's not really what you should be looking for. You should be looking to find uh, what you call mobilizers to get consensus. What One of my big takeaways from the book was that consensus amongst the buyers is is much more important than people realized. Absolutely. It really is. And especially for me, the single data point from the book that brought this home to roost, in particular for marketing, is that that buying group reaches its most difficult point of of getting to consensus at about 37% of the way through the purchase journey. And so now when you map that 37% against the 57% figure we talked about before, which is the point where they're meaningfully engaging supplier sales reps, that means that stitching that consensus together early on really happens on very much on marketing's watch. Marketing and sales need to work very differently together and approach the way that they do content and so on very differently to be able to start to stitch that consensus together before the customer is meaningfully engaging the supplier sales rep. So that has huge implications for how you do content, lead nurturing, lead scoring, and the whole bit that goes with the early purchase journey in particular. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. It seems like it's, like I said, maybe causing a bit of trouble. Are, what kind of pushback or, or disagreement are you, are you getting on, about the book? Um, well, I, I think... Or reaction. The, the the, uh, the reaction has been really positive so far, Doug. I think folks appreciate the, the very deep research that underpins the insights in the book. And so the pushback tends 
not to be around that any of this is happening or that these dynamics are true. The the questions I think we get from folks who have, you know, made their way through the first couple chapters of the book is, oh my gosh, how do I figure out how marketing and sales need to work differently together to get after this consensus buying challenge that rears its head so early in the purchase journey? It feels like it really does demand some meaningful change from sales and marketing, both individually and in how they work together. And we'd say, yeah, that is true. It kind of does. And so the rest of the book, almost from chapter five on lays out kind of the the blueprint of how you would need to change what sales and marketing do individually and together to get after these these new buying dynamics. Yeah, my sense was that people who start it are going to finish it because if it was like me, I started it and it was like, what? No. (laughs) (laughs) And then I was having to say, all right, wait, wait, okay, they're going to show me what to do here. But it's like, it was, like I say, it was a a bit of a, a paradigm buster. And the thing about it was a couple times, I'm just being really honest with you here, Pat. Sure. <laughs> a couple times in the book, I was thinking, what do these guys know? And then it was like, wait a minute, they researched this with 900, you know, <laughs> or, or thousands of uh, of their members or, or other people and all these surveys. And it started to remind me of, again, completely different book, but in Good to Great, yep. all of that book was based on data. Mm. So they weren't just, I, I don't think they were just making this up. I mean, there was a real a systematized approach to what led them to the results. And in that book, and this is, it was a similar sensation here. So that's why another reason I think the book is going to be around a long time and it's going to be getting a lot of, a lot of talk. And it's just one more thing that I think marketers, you know how these surveys, like the one from Adobe a couple years ago where they surveyed marketers Mm-hmm. and they said 76% of them said that marketing had changed more in the two years previous to that study than it had in the previous 50. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> You're not helping, Pat. Right. <laughs> but, uh, well, but, yeah, sorry about that, Doug, but at the yeah. same time, I'm really <laughs> gratified to hear you say that because I, I do think that the data-driven approach underneath this is is something that we really put a lot of energy into and, and that at the end of the day, we hang our hats on. And so we feel pretty strongly about, about what's in the book and we, we with no reservation whatsoever, apply prescription and, and ideas uh, from it to uh, to the folks who are members at, uh, here at CEB. So mm-hmm. uh, we're all in on, on this stuff. Yeah, well, bravo. If readers took only one thing away from the book, what would you hope it would be? To me, it's that B2B buying has changed dramatically just in the past five years, and in particular around this consensus dynamic. And for me, it's that 37% figure. If you're just going to have one figure that captures it, just how early in the purchase these consensus dynamics rear their head and that we as sales and and marketing leaders or sales and marketers on the front line need to do things very differently if we're to get after that 37% in a consensus Mm -hmm. challenge. Mm -hmm. Are there any recent marketing books that you recommend? Well, this goes right back to your earlier point, Doug, around, you know, marketing feeling like it's changed more in the prior two years than the last 50, I I actually find that because the space is changing so quickly, it it, it almost, and there's no real roadmap for it, that you're almost better off bringing in or studying ideas from other disciplines or other areas. So I'm going to cheat a little bit and suggest that for me, a very influential book here has has been The Lean Startup by Eric Ries Mm -hmm. and all the principles underneath that sort of agile approach to 
fast learning, minimum viable prototypes in the market. I think there's a lot of wisdom in there that could be applied to marketing these days and the way that marketing organizations kind of need to learn their own way through the chaos of, of all the change that's going on. So that's my answer to your question. Apologies if that's a little bit of a sidestep. No, no, that's a great one. <laughs> and I have to say, that is not the first time that book has been brought up. That is a very good answer, though. Are there any marketing books coming out or new books that you look forward to reading? This is the yeah. night, nightstand question. Pat. Yeah, yeah. I'm really looking forward to Scott Brinker's upcoming book. I think he's he's going to call it Hacking Marketing something along those lines. Oh, um, wow. But, you know, he's he's been such a, I think, reflective and thoughtful observer of the way that marketing technology is transforming marketing. And he brings also that kind of multidisciplinary approach to the field. And I think he's got a great book brewing based on everything I've read and conversations with him. So I'm really looking forward to hacking marketing from oh, Scott wow. Bricker. Well, I'm hearing it first here on the Marketing Book Podcast. I did not know he was working on the book. I knew that he had another ebook, but you know, it's just been we've been out for a while. But he has been really at the 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 confluence of technology and marketing, like very few have. Do you know when his book is coming out? I think that was sort of a tentative fall of 2015. So I think that puts a you know pretty wide window on it. So I uh, we shall see. But I think it is not too far away. If, okay. I, if I understand correctly from Scott. Well, I will certainly reach out to him about that. I appreciate you mentioning that. Yeah. How can listeners best find out more about you and this book? Uh, I might recommend the Challenger customer. And if you just type the Challenger customer in Google, that'll take you to, you know, the book has a has a, a, a microsite devoted to it. You can learn more about it, find some tools there, some bonus goodies and things like that um, that you that your readers would find interesting and hopefully helpful um, on their journey. Yes, yes. I think they need to move this one up on their on their reading list. Fantastic. Let me just read one final quote here. The challenges of today's customer purchase experience have been highlighted throughout this book. If there is one takeaway you should have from all the research and best practices shared to this point, it's this. Commercial organizations need to place far greater emphasis on supporting the customer's purchase process. The name of the book is The Challenger Customer, Selling to the Hidden Influencer Who Can Multiply Your Results. The authors are Brent Adamson, Matthew Dixon, Pat Spenner, and Nick Toman. Pat, thank you very much for being on the Marketing Book Podcast. Thanks, Doug. Enjoyed it very much. And that closes the book on another episode of the Marketing Book Podcast. But please don't let the end of this episode be the end of your learning. Visit marketingbookpodcast.com for show notes, free resources, and guides. And be sure to join the Marketing Book Podcast newsletter so you never miss an episode. And please join us next time for the 50th episode of the Marketing Book Podcast, which will publish on Christmas Day as we talk to Donna Papacosta, co-author of The Business of Podcasting, how to take your podcasting passion from the personal to the professional. Thanks again for listening to the Marketing Book Podcast. And it's going to include a link to a video book review I'm going to produce for Amazon. Mm -hmm. And it's just going to be about a minute and a half of me crying.
Sick of being upsold at gyms? My guy, you're currently a base member. For $90 more, I can upgrade you to our Shred membership. For $130 more, you'll be a swole member. And for just $300 more, you'll reach Sweat Platinum. At Planet Fitness, you'll get energy without the upsell. Never pushy, always free fitness training and equipment for every workout. It's fitness that fits your budget. Join Planet Fitness for just $1 down and $10 a month. Cancel anytime. Deal ends Friday, May 10th. See Home Club for details.